Well, I hope you're with me in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read a passage we've been reading each and every week. And as Pastor Kathy mentioned a moment ago, this is the introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the Magna Carta, the Constitution, and whatever you want to call it, of kingdom people describing, as she said, the kingdom community. And nowhere is it more upside down from the value system and culture of the world than here in the introduction of this sermon, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is a Latin uh, phrase that translates the word blessed, and Jesus pronounces at the beginning of the sermon, who are blessed and within reach of God's kingdom and squarely within the realm of God's blessing, even though it looks upside down from the world. So I'm going to read this passage that if you've been around the neighborhood church, you've heard the last several weeks. But let's hear the words of Jesus beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. We have reasons to be thankful. We've got reasons to sing. Thank you for allowing me to share a few of those a moment ago. So here's what I want to do to start things off. I want to talk to you about an uncomfortable phenomenon that I think that many of you have experienced. It's a rare and very uncomfortable phenomenon, but before I get there, let me set the scene. Thursday evening of this week, the Wood family attended our school's open house where we go and meet the teacher, do the PTA thing, do that stuff. And then, when we were leaving, we divided up. Amy went to friend's house, and I went home with the girls to go through our bedtime routine. So, we whittle it down and get to the reading of the story and the book. Then we get them into PJs. Then we get them into bed. All the while, since I left the school, my lips are on fire, and they are chapped. And they are becoming increasingly chapped. And throughout our bedtime routine, I would steal away and try to find my dadgum chapstick. So the girls finally are in bed. And of course, they're finally starting to chill so my hunt can begin in earnest. So I go to my desk because everything has a place. And I look where my chapstick belongs and it's not there. It's not with the paper clips, the guitar picks. I start shuffling my laptop, my papers. I start ransacking my desk. It's not there, okay? So then I go where you would go, and that is the junk drawer. You know you've got a junk drawer, right? Is this a kitchen junk drawer? Wouldn't that be a likely spot? I did not find a dadgum chapstick there. 
we're Dollar Tree people in our house, and dish brushes and chapstick are just, that's always on the Dollar Tree list. Not a one. At this point, I'm just desperate. It's like I've crossed the Sahara, and I'm dying. I'm in the Antarctic tundra, and my lips are on fire, and they're chapped. Well, here's the uncomfortable phenomenon. Let me see if you have experienced this. Your lips are at their most chapped, the chappiest of chapped lips, the further you are from a chapstick. Do you know what I'm saying? When you're driving and you're like, man, my lips are chapped, and all of a sudden it's like your lips know that there's no chapstick in your pocket. Because when your lips are chapped and you've got chapstick in your pocket, surprise, I found it, it's no big deal. But it's like when you know that Amy's not going to be home till 11 o'clock and I can't leave my house because my children are asleep, so I can't go to the store and I can't find chapstick. It's like my lips just say, well, that's it. This is my life now and I'm going to be chapped and I'm just going to go for it because it's hopeless and why not? I'm just going to kill Adam with chapped lips. And this is the uncomfortable phenomenon where your lips are at their most chapped <laughs> the further you are from chapstick. This was serious in my life and y'all don't care right now. And you're like, why is he talking about this? Because I laid down that night, and it dawned on me, Emma used it last. And I drift off into sleep, and the first thing I do when I wake up this morning, on Friday, is I run into that room, I say, wake up, it's time for school, where's my chapstick? (laughs) She, like, barely awake, she goes, it's in my purse. So I root through her purse, I find my gum, I find my quarters, I find my chapstick in her little frozen purse that wasn't in the house, it was in the car. It was far from me, and my lips were so chapped. And I say all of this ridiculous illustration and story to convey this broader phenomenon, and that is this. Isn't it true, stay with me, Isn't it true that the further your desire is from reach, the further that thing that you're desperate for, the further that thing is from your reach, the deeper the longing for it is to be filled. You with me? The more you yearn for, long for, desire, or desperate for a thing, the deeper the longing to have it becomes. Tonight's beatitude that we're looking at is when Jesus looked out at the disciples and he looked out at the crowd and he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now when we were reading this whole passage earlier, and if you've listened to some of the messages that we've talked about thus far, you might hear Jesus say things like, Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, the poor in spirit. And you kind of say, eh, that doesn't sound right. And then Jesus goes on to say, yeah, um, blessed are those who mourn. And you say, dude, that, no, that's not right. And then you might hear him say next, blessed are the meek, the overlooked, the unemployed, underemployed, too young, too old, the meek. And you're like, no, 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 this is wrong. But then the next beatitude, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And all of a sudden, I think the people that he started to lose in the crowd, he starts to say, okay, now, now I, can, I, I can say amen to this. 
Do you see that or is it just me? Like if you're looking at this list and you're hear, hearing me and Kathy say, hey, these are upside down, these are upside down, you're like, yeah, I, that makes sense. But this one, you're like, no, this sounds, this sounds right. This sounds churchy. This sounds religion-y. This sounds right. That the people that are really going for it are the ones that are blessed and right. You with me? But here's why we need to talk about this and see through God's eyes. Imagine as Jesus looks at his disciples and looks at the crowds, he's been using the poor in spirit and the mourning and the meek as object lessons for those who are squarely within reach of God's blessing and kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And imagine he's looking in the eyes of a woman just 20 feet from him where he sits with tears streaming down her face that has had one of the worst years she could have ever imagined. Imagine, and we're just putting our biblical imagination on for what some women in the first century experienced. Imagine that here is this woman that was married and lost her husband in a senseless act of violence because he got caught in the fracas and fray of some ridiculous kind of protest or uprising, and he lost his life just so quickly and senselessly. And because they're an oppressed people, and Rome got to do what they wanted to do, he has no justice, no trial, no sense of recourse or reparations, and they don't even give her a letter to say, I'm sorry for your loss. She just loses her husband. And in that world, it meant she lost her security. She lost her resources because she couldn't just walk down to Lowe's and get a job. She was destitute and done for because perhaps this woman also didn't have any kids. So now we've got this woman that's childless, that's husbandless, and the world looks at her and says, she must be cursed and done for. She can't go file a complaint. She can't go make an appeal. She is the one who is desperate for God to make things right in her world because no one else cares or will. Imagine, as Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he's not really making eye contact with the people that say, yeah, that sounds right. He's making contact with the woman who is more keenly aware of how far away her longing and desire is. She's the one that feels the deepest longing because her deepest fulfillment is so much further out of reach. When we talk about those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're talking about something way beyond a hungering and a thirsting for chapstick. We're talking about someone that is walking our streets that has no recourse in this world. No one's listening to them. No one's hearing their case. No one's fighting alongside them. And they are desperate. So they look to God and say, I can't make it right. Can you? When we hear that word righteousness, some church folk might hear Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, describing that word as a right standing before God. And that is a way in which we can use that word righteousness. But in the Old Testament, and in Jesus' idea at this moment, 
And then the prophet's idea, righteousness, was a right living in which you are living and breathing and working in harmony with the God who is making things right in the world that's broken. You with me? So there is this thread of a right standing before God, and there's also a right standing like this woman who is desperate for God to make things right in their world. So then imagine that Jesus also looks a shade or two to the left, and he sees this old man that has spent his whole life spinning his wheels and making the sacrifices and going and giving and loving and serving and doing all the right things that God had asked him to do. And yet he still sat there on that mountainside looking at Jesus, desperate and longing for some sense that it's all worth it. I would venture to guess that there are people that meet in this space, or that space, or that space, or that church, or that temple, or that mosque, and they've been doing it right, they've been saying it right, they've been living it right, and yet there is still this longing within them that looks up to the heavens and says, is it enough, or worse, am I enough? And I've got to imagine Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed is the one desperate for God to make things right in his heart. When we're talking about righteousness and longing and the desire, what we're talking about is a rightness or a justice in our heart and in our world. And the promise of Jesus for these kinds of people is that they will be filled. But we need a kingdom vision of longing for righteousness, and we need a kingdom vision of fulfillment. Those are the two places we're going to head. A kingdom vision of longing for righteousness. The one longing for something that seems so desperately out of reach, and then a kingdom vision of what it looks like for fulfillment. But before we talk about it, I want to go back and paint the picture we've been painting because I think it's so vital that we are reminded of this. Remember that the Beatitudes are not prescriptive. They are descriptive. The Beatitudes are not take four of these and you'll get blessed by the morning. If that was the case, then you should just be poorer. You should just be sadder. You should just be more persecuted and God will give you what you want. That would be salvation by attitude, not salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They're not prescriptive, they are descriptive. They're describing the people that the world says is cursed and God says is blessed. So, to say it another way, the Beatitudes are not about commanding behavior they are about casting a kingdom vision that's upside down from the world's vision and values. So we need a kingdom vision of longing for righteousness and a kingdom vision of fulfillment. And I need you to know this. Right there on that screen, that's a little wonky tonight and Maria and I don't know why. Do y'all see this? Let me just name it so you don't wonder the whole time. What's up with that screen? 
Who knows? We'll figure it out. Someone can get a ladder and fix it tomorrow, maybe. I don't know. Both of these things on the screen are God-given. Even the longing that we have deep within us is God-given. And the fulfillment is God-given as well. But it's this lack of rightness in their heart and in their world that leads them on. It's that lack of chapstick that led me through the house, ripping it up and tearing it up. It leads us on. It's like somebody stranded in the desert that they keep pressing on. They keep going toward an oasis. These are the people that Jesus is saying, you're right there. You're with it. You've got it. It's yours. But first we need a kingdom vision of longing for righteousness. Let me put it this way. Jesus, as clearly as I can, here's what he's describing. Jesus is speaking of those who burn with desire for the wrong to be made right, whether in themselves or within the world. This is what I've been trying to communicate. It's the woman sitting over there longing for justice in the world. And it's also the man that's longing for rightness in his own heart. How many of you have been either one of those people any given day of the week? Or is it just me? How many of you are looking at the world and you're screaming at the TV screen saying, why can't this be made right? Or maybe it doesn't even have to be in the news. It's in your own family circle and sphere and you rail and you rage and you long for things to be made right. And then how many of you have been the kid like I was that grew up in church that knew that God was good but you were certain he wasn't good with you. Jesus is speaking of those who burn with desire for the wrong to be made right, whether in themselves and within the world. And the further it seems out of reach, the deeper our longing. So I need to tell you what you already know to be true. We're hardwired for longing. And I think we're hardwired for longing in three big ways. We're hardwired for things to be right. This is what I've been speaking of thus far. Shout out and show of hands. I know one hand that's going to shoot straight up if she's paying attention. No offense, but I'm with you, girl. Shout out to my game night referees. Before I finished, there's Becky. Y'all don't want to do a game night with me and Becky because... We're those people that are going to check that word in the dictionary. You try to pass over us on Scrabble. Y'all don't want to do a game night with me and Becky because we're the ones that have the rule book in our back pocket when you try to play that card in that time. I think there's something baked within us to rage at the TV or rage at game night and lose all your friends because we're hardwired for longing for things to be right. Okay, show of hands or shout out for my happily ever after movie buffs. You're the people that doesn't want no M. Night Shyamalan twist ending. You want things to be wrapped up with a pretty little bow and that's why you watch Hallmark Christmas movies. Now, for some of us, these things are more evident than others. Some of us have suppressed that because we want to keep friends and not ruin them over a game of Monopoly. Some of us are so affected by culture and we're so inoculated and used to brokenness that when we see a movie where the bad guy wins, we're like, yeah, that's just life, man. That's what it is. This is what it's 
a part of, but I think deep down there's still something within us that when we see a wrong, we know that it should be right. I think we're hardwired for that kind of longing. I also think we're hardwired for connection. And this is what I mean. There's a longing to connect with others. Yes, even you introverts. Yes, even you introverts. Here's why I think this is true. Because even introverts, at some point in their life, as, as uh, much as it may pain them to admit, they seek and long for a connection with at least an other. It doesn't have to be everybody others. They don't want to go to you know, furs tonight and just kick it with a hundred people at the buffet because it's exhausting. But even introverts long for connection. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just saying this is what's hardwired deep within us. Even at a cellular level, cells all throughout the universe, even as it's expanded, quantum physicists say that the universe is bent toward unity. That even though it looks like everything is expanding and going, which it is, what's happening at the core level is atoms and particles are longing and looking for things to bond with. And I think that it's baked into us, it's hardwired to us, because you can also hear Susan at work say, you know, this job really stinks. I really feel like I want to be a part of something bigger. Have you heard that? Have you said that? That's what I said when I worked in a bookstore and I literally spent eight hours peeling off used book stickers. That's what you do when you get a college temp job. I said, I feel like I need to be a part of something bigger. They said, stop, take those stickers off. And then I quit because I was longing for something bigger, for connection. Y'all don't, don't want to hear my stupid stories tonight. Let's just move on. I think we're also hardwired for the divine. I think there's a connection and something that's right that goes deeper than even what we see at face value. Think about human spirituality throughout all the ages. They've always been concocting systems to try to connect with something beyond themselves, to try to make sense of this world around them. Would you write down or remember or even look at right now Acts chapter 17? I love this. It's a powerful passage. Paul is walking around the famous city of Athens and he's looking at God and statue after statue after statue after statue. And he addresses this crowd and he says, I see that you guys are grasping and very religious. And he says, do you know that God put all these people across all of these places so that they may grope after and seek after and reach after God. But then he says this, but he's actually not that far away from them. What would you do to just sit with that and think about how some of our fundamentalist brothers and sisters could wrap their minds around how the ones we think are the furthest and the most lost causes are actually not that far off after all? And it's less about their position and more about God's nearness to all peoples and all places. Because it's a God-given longing to connect. The problem is we try to elevate ourselves, we try to elevate our religious systems, or we try to just fill this longing and this void with stuff. 
whether it's stuff that we fill our houses with or stuff that we fill our bodies with, whether it's stuff we fill our schedules with, maybe this relationship or this person or this purchase or this thing or this job, maybe this will fill my longing. But the truth is, St. Augustine got it right a long time before you've heard me say this message. He said in a prayer to God after he had tried all the things, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. Hear this. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Let me say that last part again. Our hearts are restless until it rests in you. So instead of asking the question, what are you longing for? Right? Because really, whether we're the woman that's desperate for someone to listen and desperate for justice to be served, or the man that's desperate to feel like he's right and acceptable in Jesus, it's really shades of the same. They have some longing, some need to be fulfilled. So a better question than what are you longing for? Because I think really truly, if we sat down and had coffee and started to talk about it, I think it's all symptoms of a deeper need for fulfillment. The better question is this. You ready? It's up on the screen, so you've already seen it. Where are you looking? This is what gets us so screwed up. This is what gets us so messed up. Because as Blaise Pascal said, similarly in the 1600s, he didn't use these words, but this concept was his, and that we have this abyss within our heart. But the only thing that can fill such an enormous abyss is the infinite God. The concept, you've heard of it, is the God-shaped hole. Have you heard of this? When we talk about a kingdom vision of longing, Jesus is looking into the eyes of the most desperate and hurting and thirsty and hungry. And he's saying, look no further. So into human history and into a history of misplaced longings walks Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to hear this. Jesus did not come to offer some Judaism 2.0. The thought that people say the three major world religions are Islam and Judaism and Christianity, I think would make Jesus cringe. Because he would say, since when did Christianity become this religion? Or when did it just become some different brand or version of a legalistic Judaism that I thought I used the goodness that God had given, but then pulled it forward into its natural conclusion, and that is, instead of doing all the things, just come and walk with God himself. Jesus didn't walk in to Galilee and say, I'm Jesus, 
And what I offer you today is the latest and greatest. What I offer you today on the already overcrowded religious buffet is the latest and greatest thing that if you did X, Y, and Z, you'll get A, B, and C. Jesus did not come to offer a new religion unto an already crowded buffet of the world religions. What Jesus did is wipe the whole stinking thing off and say instead, Come to me. And the degree to which we make what we do here part of the religious system, we're still just hopping on the hamster wheel of misplaced longings, and we're following suit in what humans have done for history, and that is to step onto the hamster wheel in order to do the things that are really just insulating us from communing with and stepping out into a relationship to the one who said, come to me. I really think, and hear me, I want to say this so carefully and delicately because I want to communicate this again to myself as well as to you. What if when you're feeling, excuse me, when you're feeling unfulfilled, Could it simply be a misplacement of our longings to the things that we've substituted for a relationship with Jesus, and instead we've just made it a relationship to a church? Could it be when we sit together and we pray together and you talk about how you don't believe or you don't trust or you don't know this? Could it be? I'm serious. I'm asking this as a question, not as an indictment. Could it be that you have traded the infinite for the finite? And you've traded the voice of God for the voice of Adam? Or fill in the blank for the millions of other preachers that have podcasts? Could it be that you've traded the word of God in the scripture and the word of God made flesh, that is Jesus, for the words that we can buy from the discount bin at Mardell? Could it be that the thought of coming to Jesus is so frightening and unwieldy and confusing that we want to give us a few layers of insulation because it's a lot easier to listen to me than it is to him? Could it be that so many of God's communities scattered throughout the world feel it safer to have a nice religious checklist that are good and vital only insofar as they serve to help us get a step closer to an encounter with the living God. Jesus comes to look our longings, our hungers, and our thirsts right in the face and say, come right here. And to come to church is to be a little bit step closer that you might look beyond the church service and gathering and to instead perhaps be present to the presence that is within and around and amongst these words, these songs, these prayers. What we do are vehicles, and they're good vehicles insofar as they serve to get you perhaps this moment a step closer to an actual encounter with the divine. You with me? This is why we do church. 
This is why we say, let's go for two and a half days to a place in Mount Lebanon to sit with Jesus. Because it's really hard for me to sit with Jesus at my house. But maybe if I drive an hour and go with some of my brothers from the neighborhood church, it will help me get a step closer into an encounter with the living God. That's why we do it. And because we're going to play cards and have stakes and maybe do a ropes course. So come to the Create Space Men's Retreat. But only if the ropes course serves to take us a step closer to the divine. Because <laughs> I will be saying, Jesus, help me, Jesus! Just making sure you're still listening. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my brother. I'm going to get like eight things of chapstick next week when y'all come to church. Jesus enters in and he says things like this. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd that had just eaten a hearty lunch in the wilderness of some loaves and fish said, Sir, that bread sounds amazing. Sir, give us this bread always. For five payments of $19.95, I'm in. That sounds wonderful. And then Jesus ruins it. Because he ain't about church growth. He's about the truth. And he says to these people, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And in John chapter 6, where these words are recorded, the crowd then begins to grumble and mumble amongst themselves. And they began to, I imagine, grumble by saying things like, couldn't this dude have just given us his book? And then some of the other ones says, isn't this dude just Joseph's son? Talking about the bread of life. Could it be that when we're unfulfilled... It's simply a misplacement of our longing because we want some substitute. We want ourselves. We want some system. But Jesus offers himself to those who are burning with desire for the wrong to be made right, whether in themselves or within the world. And Jesus says, come to me. You will never be hungry again if you stay close to the bread. And I am the bread. So we need a kingdom vision of fulfillment as well. I want to tell you a story that I heard years ago. There was a time in our life where we began to pray some scary prayers, and God answered this prayer a lot quicker than we wanted him to answer it. In fact, it was literally within a few hours. We had this moment in which we were walking around our neighborhood. We were living in East Dallas, and it was in between um, church services, and uh, I was walking my dog, and I realized I just had this sense that I was like, maybe I need to be open to something new that God has for us. And I said, God, um, I think we're willing to do whatever you want us to do next. We weren't planning or scheming or dreaming or had any idea. Well, I come home uh, after this walk and within a few minutes and I say, Amy, I said, I have this feeling, I've got this sense. And she said that we need to do something new or at least be open to it. I said, 
were you listening to my phone or something? Did I leave it on speakerphone when I was walking the dog? She's like, no, I've, I woke up and I had this sense too. And we said, weird. Anyway, let's go to Taco Bueno. And we go have dinner and we do our thing. And then we woke up the next morning, hours later, and this guy from, uh, from Canada sends us a text and he says, hey man, I'm in town. I'd love to do lunch with you today. So we meet him at this Dickie's barbecue in West Dallas and it turns into one of those like four hour lunches. Have y'all ever had one of those four hour lunches? I had to take a personal day off work for this lunch and it was worth it because it was one of these lunches where he says, hey, I really think that God might be into something, and you need to think about being a pastor. You need to think about being a preacher. You need to even think about getting some money from this church organization and coming and living with me in Canada. And you can be my pastoral apprentice, and you can come for two years, and you can free me up to go do some other things and to do uh, other things. And he says, and by the way, uh, we're changing the name of the church. I had already been up there twice. He goes, by the way, we're changing the name of the church to Providence Community Church in Montreal. And we said, oh, okay, wow, that's wild. And so what we ended up doing was going to a conference to try and get some money to see about moving to Canada. And I met this man who was the director of church planning in this organization in Canada. And that's not even the story I was wanting to tell you. The story I want to tell you is something that he told me. And so he said, you know, when I think about church planning, I can't help but think about the amazing way in which God started our church. And so he began to tell this small group of people in this room about how he took four families in the outskirts of Toronto. And he said, I think God wants us to start something new. And what I want these four families to do is go invite some neighbors and friends and families and couples. And I want us to all schedule a dinner in a community center in our neighborhood. And so a month later, the night had arrived. They're in this community center. And all these people are sitting down. The four Christian families are scattered around amidst all of these other friends, neighbors, singles, families that had shown up for some lasagna and breadsticks and salad. And they're in this community center eating. And then finally, this man, his name is Jeff Christofferson, he steps up and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, I am so sorry to interrupt these conversations. But I would just require of you one thing. Could you please answer this question for me? How would you describe your ideal spiritual community? And so 80% of that room, of the 60 or so people there, were like, ah, here it is. These church guys always ruin stuff. And they were sitting there for a few awkward seconds until finally, one by one and little by little, the non-churched, de-churched, non-Christian folk began to say, you know what? If I was a part of a church, it better be a lot different than these churches. In fact, I think it church stood, and he keeps going. Well, I'm spiritual, so I feel like my spiritual community should and on and on they went. Until the whole room is talking about this. 
So then after 15 minutes of these kind of group discussions, he goes to the board and he says, hey, can you guys report back what you found? And he starts writing all of these things. And eventually they kind of find their way into these three kind of umbrella statements. The first is a spiritual community where God mattered every day, not just on Sunday, where this was a way of life your life with God. The, third, the second thing he said was a spiritual community that cared for each other, physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually. They met actual real needs. They spent time together. They had relational needs. And then the third thing he says is it wasn't just for us in here, but they took actual care and responsibility of those outside. And Jeff's crazy experiment super duper paid off because he was sitting there going, yes, 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 because his thumb was in Acts chapter 2. And he was like, guess what, guess what, guess what, guess what, guess what? And he opens up Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And he says, it looked like this when this thing started. Because Jesus came not to make these institutions and this religion, but he came to address the deepest longings in our world and in our hearts. And when people said yes to this message that he is Lord and he's inviting them into life with him, it wasn't just a relationship with him. It became this relationship with this people that set off on this way with him and they found in him bread of life and they found in him living water and so what he said is would you want to come back and try to do this and in his story in the first year 52 of those people gave their lives to Jesus and were baptized because he planted a church with non Christians who longed for the kinds of fulfillment, they just didn't know where to look. Jesus met a woman at the well who had been looking in all the wrong places to fill the relational and connective needs in her life. And she went looking for a drink of water, but what she found instead was some kind of fulfillment. She found Jesus who is doing something really scandalous because Jesus shouldn't be talking to a woman that's on her own. And Jesus went for it instead because I think he recognized something deeper going on. So Jesus talked to this woman and said, hey, can you hook me up with a drink? And then she said, yeah, because you didn't bring your cup, you dodo. Yes, I guess I'll help you. That's not really what he said, but close enough. But then Jesus answered her, if you knew really what I'm asking, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, we can go back, if you really knew who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, does that sound familiar? Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw from this well and the well is deep. Where do you think you're going to get this living water? And then Jesus says this, everyone who drinks this water, as he points to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come into them and then become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
It's the drink that keeps on giving. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Her response was remarkably similar to the crowds. Sir, give it up. I need this. But her response was different from the earlier crowd that rejected the bread of life. Instead, she wants to drink deeply. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst and long for the rightness of heart and the rightness in the world, but they look for it in Jesus. Blessed are those who have spun their wheels and have walked on the religious hamster wheel and have thought that fulfillment was so far out of reach and their longing had grown so high until they come to Jesus and find that to drink deeply of the living water and to eat much of the bread of life is to change their desires, to change their chemistry in so far that they begin to help change the world around them. A kingdom vision of fulfillment is less about everything being fixed today and more about staying close to the bread and the water so that you don't starve. A kingdom of fulfillment says, stay close to the one who can satisfy you now and will satisfy you eternally. So to close, I want to remind you and describe to you that Jesus is speaking of those like you who burn with desire for the wrong to be made right, whether within themselves or within their world. That's a kingdom vision of longing for righteousness. But Jesus is also the good news for those who are hungry and thirsty. He is and he will be the fulfillment to the longing in our hearts and in our world. She knew what she wanted, this woman at the well. She just didn't know where to find it. Would you have kingdom vision to see those who are running and displacing all of their longings and all the wrong things, and would you gently meet them at the well and introduce them to a living water? Not because you have all the right answers to all their questions, but because you are a beggar in the bread line that can show other beggars where the food is. And you're the beggar at the well that can show them where the living water is. Would you have a kingdom vision for those that we meet in our own community center, in our own church that was once called Providence Community Church, to listen to the longings and the needs of our community and to hear the deeper longing and say, could you, could you try and work with us over here? Because one day, as we're filled along the way by the bread and the living water, It's just a taste of the feast that will be for us when one of the elders in the kingdom come says this in Revelation chapter 7 as we close. Never again will God's people hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd 
and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then we'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that those who mourn and those who hunger and those who thirst really will be comforted and really will be fulfilled. Because Jesus is the good news for those who are hungry and thirsty. He is and he will be the fulfillment to the longing that you have right now in your heart and your world. Would you just come and stay close to the bread and the water who is Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this space and this place and this time to catch glimpses that should be pointing beyond themselves to an encounter with the divine who is whispering to the hearts of those in this room that they are beloved, that they are made in your image, that the only time they are really separated from God is in their mind because nothing, not one thing in heaven or earth can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Not one thing will be able to separate this person in this place and in this space from the love of the Father in Jesus Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Not one thing, not that thing that they did this morning, not that thing that they did last night, not one thing in heaven or earth, not one thing not one power, not one person can separate them from the love that is theirs right now, right here, without measure. But our minds and our hearts send that stream of longing down another channel. Would you redirect us in your grace to the deepest and limitless ocean that is the love of God expressed to us in the kindness and tenderness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is so much bigger and better than we give him credit for because he was not a new religion founder. He was the life giver. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. And he offers us nothing less than a complete transformation of ourselves and our world would we hunger and thirst and long and stay close to him. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, the bread of life and living water. Amen. Amen. Lord, lend us your strength to do your will. Give us hearts for justice and peace. Grant us loving hearts of compassion. Walk with us as we seek to care for your creation, your children, your heart. Amen. Go in peace.